Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you this week? Doing well, Robert. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right. We missed you last week. Uh, we, You were not here. I, we had Olivia Krauth on to talk about the KET Republican gubernatorial debate, and she uh, and I talked a lot about how crazy it was. <laughs> uh, did you get a chance to catch any of it? Did you take a break from it? Do you have anything before we get into what we're talking about this week? I didn't watch it. I caught the Twitter highlights on that one. Um, but you had a really great guest, so I- I'm kind of sad that I missed that. Yeah, yeah. Big fan of hers. Uh, of course, you know, been reading her since the Insider Louisville days. Um, and I think it was her first time on the show, so it was fun to have her, uh, you know, always good to have like a journalistic perspective, which is a little different yeah. than ours. Um, yeah, and, and you know, we can kind of approach some of this primary from a journalistic perspective. I'm pretty ambivalent. They're mostly the same. Uh, so whatever. Um, yeah, but this week, what we're going to talk about mostly, Jasmine is going to be sharing with us the ACLU's suit, um, which they are filing in order to block the anti-trans legislation that was passed during this year's session. That's going to take up most of what we have to say this week, but they, we do have a substantial number of quick hits that I'm going to go over. So yeah, Jasmine, without any further ado, tell us what we need to know about the ACLU's suit. Okay, so on May 3rd, the ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of seven youth to block Senate Bill 150, which is the omnibus anti-trans bill passed by the legislature a few weeks ago um, in 2023. So um, as a reminder, the bill bans any form of medical gender transition for minors, um, but then it does other things, too. Um, like it has a requirement for doctors to set a timeline for detransitioning children who are already taking puberty blockers or undergoing hormone hormone therapy. Um, schools would not be allowed to discuss sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, they would be required to have bathroom policies. Um, it has like requirements that minors can't legally change their names as part of transitioning it and all kinds of things like that. So um, we had a bad bill that ended up being even worse at the end. Um, So the lawsuit, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit are seven Jane Doe and John Doe trans children and teens ranging from ages, ranging from ages nine to 16 coming from the Western district and the Eastern District of Kentucky. So um, Kentucky has, this suit is filed in federal court um, in the Western District. And we we only have two federal court districts. And the suit says that three of them reside in Jefferson County and the others are just named as residing in the Western District and Eastern District. That's that's probably just to um, protect their identity, and, and where they live. And of course they're not named. They're listed as Jane Doe one, John Doe one, um, and things like that under pseudonyms. Um, all of them are, are trans youth. Um, all have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and in the complaint, um, the plaintiff's site, um, a lot of statistics, one of which um, that 56% of transgender youth have reported a previous suicide attempt and 86% have reported um, suicidality. They also discussed um, 
the standard of care for treating gender dysphoria, which is a clinical diagnosis in the DSM-5, um, which all the plaintiffs have been diagnosed with. And um, they discuss that it's highly treatable um, and that treatments are effective. And the standards of care were initially developed by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or um, WPATH. And those standards are followed by the American Medical Association and other major medical professional organizations. There's a whole list of them. Um, and those standards involve letting people live in alignment with their gender identity. The lawsuit points out that non-transgender youth can still access the same hormone therapy that trans youth now will not be able to access. Um, boys can be prescribed testosterone if they have not begun puberty by age 14, um, and girls may be prescribed estrogen for conditions like Turner syndrome um, or even like testosterone suppressants for conditions like PCOS. Um, so you're not, they're not receiving equal treatment. Yeah. Um, as other youth. So, uh, you know, as the non-lawyer on the show, the, the two things that you just mentioned most recently, which is the first, like, here's how all of these standards of care were developed. And then the second being um, here are the ways that this these medical treatments can be prescribed for non-trans kids. The second one seems like much more of like a legal argument, like these trans kids are being singled out for something, um, which to me seems like more of a legal thing. Like, hey, this is bad because you can't do that. You can't just like single people out like that versus the first one, which is like this is out of line with what the professionals say we should do. And I feel like, you know, there's a long history of uh, laws being made that uh, skirt around what experts say we should do. So is that, am I right here or am I incorrect? Uh, does the first part really, is that more convincing for other reasons? And is the second part less convincing for, for other reasons? Well, so all of that that I just went through is kind of l listed in the factual allegations of their complaint um so that's before they even get into their like legal claims of relief but i i think that that second part definitely goes towards like an equal protection argument so right all their factual allegations are, are going to lead to some part of their legal argument um right but but they're just you know complaint a uh, a legal complaint's pretty bare bones, um, and and you're just providing the most relevant facts, um, and so there's not always a lot there. But I mean, they're setting up a, a couple things there that one that this is a clinical diagnosis, and there are standards of care um, that are being violated here. Um, and and I think I think some of these medical care arguments are going to be going towards like a, a due process argument. Um, and then the other part is like an equal protection thing is, I think, where we're going to be going. Makes sense. I see you having those laid out in Which, the notes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Um, so. And, and the other reason like that we talk about these things like in the factual allegations is because, you know, you also have to um, allege injury or, you know, some sort of harm when you, um, you know, plead a claim. Um, and so in this case, the plaintiffs um, 
are, you know, all doing some form of transitioning, such as um, being on menstrual suppression medication or testosterone patches or estrogen. um, And they, or, and they've alleged that transitioning has alleviated depression um, and improved their mental health and improved anxiety and things like that. And so um, those are things that are discussed in the complaint as well. And so um, there are claims of relief listed in the complaint. And and there's not a lot of legal argument here. You won't see this in the complaint um, because, like I said, they're they're pretty bare bones. Um, we won't see that until we get into further briefing and argument and everything. But um, it's basically claims under Section 1983, which is um, basically it creates a remedy for a violation of a federally protected right. And there's two of them. One, a due process claim um, and the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects the rights of parents to make decisions concerning the care, custody, and control of their children. So the first claim is going to be a due process claim about parental rights. Um, And there's the the kind of like landmark case about parental rights is um, Troxel v. Granville. It's from 2000, and it's a case about non-parent visitation rights. So, um, you know, it's not about... Medical care, it's a little different than this, but that's the case that talks about due process and parental rights and control over of care and custody of children. Um, and then the other is equal protection. And of course, that also comes from the 14th Amendment as well. Um, no state shall deny anyone equal protection of the laws. And their argument is that this law singles out transgender children Um, Under the Equal Protection Clause, government classifications based on sex are subject to heightened scrutiny. So um, there are are certain classifications that are subject to a different level of scrutiny than any general law. Um, For example race is one of those and and that's subject to strict scrutiny. Sex Sex classifications are entitled to intermediate scrutiny, so not as much as some others, um, but intermediate. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it, the low scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and high scrutiny, huh? Okay. Uh, low low scrutiny is just called rational basis review. Um, if there's a rational basis for the law, then it it's okay. Yeah. Um, Sex based classifications get intermediate scrutiny. Um, and then other classifications like race, national origin, religion, those are entitled to strict scrutiny. I see. Um, so, so gender, sex, th- those things are, are in the middle. Um, but the Supreme Court has not addressed whether this level of scrutiny applies to transgender individuals. So we don't have a Supreme Court case on point addressing that issue. Um, and so those, those are kind of the two arguments, um, in the case. And so I, you know, I don't have a ton 
here like diving into the law because I I'd like to talk about this case kind of as it develops um, because I think that there will also be other cases across the country about similar laws being passed Um, and so that's what we have so far um, just from the complaint and the ACLU has filed this suit um, with the National Center for Lesbian Rights and um, they filed it in federal court and we're just at the beginning of this and so we will follow it as it goes along. Yeah, and these federal cases can take a long time to kind of evolve. Uh, You know, the Supreme Court sometimes doesn't rule on things until like after the plaintiffs are dead, you know, that's like not an unusual situation to find yourself in. I, well, I, I don't know if you, whatever, like it, it sometimes takes a really long time, uh, for, for the, these things to happen. Um, so, but I don't know, like the, it, they can also happen kind of quickly. You know, this is of course something that's happening all over the country. This is probably going to make its way through the federal courts here in Kentucky and up through the appellate courts. And it's highly likely, I mean, you think it's probably going to be like a split circuit type situation and it's just on its way to the Supreme court. Is that likely? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, there are there are already circuit splits over several like transgender rights type cases um but they i don't think that the supreme court has specifically like taken one up that answers the like sex classification issue and like what level of scrutiny they're entitled to yeah um well you know that is it is interesting because it is like some some interesting arguments that are being made uh constitutional rights uh yeah and and we will we'll see i mean yeah it it is going to take a while but there will probably be some lower level court stuff happening pretty quickly right i mean what do you think the timeline is so what do you think the timeline is do you think that anything could happen um where we might have arguments like in the before the end of 2023 um, there hasn't been any kind of hearing or anything scheduled yet in this case, so I I truly don't know. I don't practice yeah. in federal court. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. So uh, who knows? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, but we will be paying attention to it as it evolves. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I also think that like we should be paying attention to uh, it as this issue as it evolves in other states because it will be there are a lot of other states that passed laws very similar to Kentucky's uh, anti-trans law. Uh, and, and those are all going to come under scrutiny at, at the federal level in each of those individual states. So, um, yeah, we will we will see how it goes. Okay, um, yeah, that, that's the main thing we wanted to talk about today. Uh, but there are a lot of other things to talk about uh, that are that are a little bit lower level. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about those things. So we talked a lot about the KET debate last week, where you know basically everybody who could you know that KET invited uh was on stage and it was probably the only time we'll get to see Daniel Cameron and and Kelly Craft like arguing with each other but there was another debate last night uh last night was May the 8th and it was uh WKYT which is the television station television station outside of Lexington uh and it hosted they hosted a Republican gubernatorial debate but only Ryan Quarles, Mike Carmen and Eric Dieters attended so it you know it ended up being a lot tamer then the KUT debate, not a lot of fireworks, even though Eric Dieters was there. I think one of the reasons for this is that nobody on stage was really actually in danger of winning the primary. Uh, there were three people there who are going to come in probably 
third, fourth, and maybe fifth or sixth. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know where Alan Keck is in this debate either. I was surprised to see that he wasn't on this debate. I don't know if he didn't get invited or didn't want to show up or whatever. So anyways, that's who was there. They mostly just talked about cutting the income tax to 0%. Mike Harmon was the only one skeptical of that. They talked about how much they really supported SB 150 and how they would never support any type of gun reform. So pretty traditional, typical Republican stuff. Um, Always disappointing to hear it come out of every candidate's mouth, especially, you know, Mike Harmon and Ryan Quarles, who uh, ostensibly are a little bit more... um, you know, reasonable on on some of these issue based things, but that is not what we saw yesterday. They both both basically said that they were aligned with the Kelly Crafts and Daniel Cameron's of the world, at least on those big issues. Uh, did you see any tweets about this or watch it at all, Jasmine? I missed this one completely. Well, <laughs> just, just missed it, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I said, nobody can't, can't believe I co-host a political podcast (laughs) i've had a very busy weekend and and i was kind of just like catching up on my own life Uh, you just gotta whenever whenever life is busy like that you just gotta shake it off and move on so there exactly (laughs) all right uh there were at least two notable deaths uh relative to this podcast at least in kentucky last week and the first one is virginia moore who, uh, you know, you may remember as the ASL interpreter for Andy Bashir during much of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, she, she passed away earlier this week. And then also Tom Wine, who's the Commonwealth attorney in Louisville, an elected official with a lot of power. A lot of important people knew him and uh, interacted with him. So a lot of people who've been on the show before definitely knew him quite well. Um, he, he died. Uh, both, both of these deaths were, were of people who died before their time. Both of them are very tragic. Um, there are parts of the COVID outbreak that I definitely wish I could erase from my memory forever that I could just not, not, if I could just like erase them and have them go away, I would do it. But, um, but one thing I'll always hold on to is like one of the silver linings of this was Miss Virginia and, and Andy Bashir's press conferences more generally, especially during the first part of 2020. Uh, but her kind of being a, a star in, in signing her way into our hearts, bringing attention to issues around uh, deaf people and, and it, you know, deaf issues more generally um, was a big passion of hers that she, you know, was able to bring to the fore with her role. So, you know, it's really sad to see that she passed away. And then, and then Tom Wine, um, you know, his death has serious repercussions uh, for for legal issues here in Louisville, as his office is responsible for prosecuting all the felony uh, offenses in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, right now Daniel Cameron has temporarily appointed Irwin Roberts, who I think is in the office currently. He's somebody who's like, I guess maybe one of Mr. Wine's assistants. Um, but ultimately, Andy Bashir does get to pick the replacement, so that's something we need to be watching for sure. Um, you know, Tom Wine like every elected official not a perfect person definitely a lot of criticisms for the job that he did uh, especially uh, around the brianna taylor case for sure and the protests that happened afterwards but you know a lot of people came out of the woodwork to say they really appreciated him as a person so you know he he's passed on and, and that's that's what it is uh jasmine anything to say about uh virginia moore or or uh tom wine yeah i i think you really hit it with virginia like i when I think of like the early COVID times, I mean, what I remember was Andy Bashir's five o'clock pressers with Virginia. Um, so really sad to hear that and, and sad to hear about Tom Wine as well. And something that I really learned about Tom Wine just in the last um, couple of years going to a lot more community events is 
he he attends so many and, and really gives a lot back to the community. And I was just at an event at the Roots 101 Museum um, a few weeks ago and members there were talking about how he's like showed up to feed the homeless with their group of people in the West End and, and all the like he really did do a lot of community work outside of his role as the Commonwealth attorney. Um, and, and so that was really cool to hear about recently. Um, and he really, there, there really are big shoes to fill, um, at the Commonwealth attorney's office. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a judge. He was an appellate judge before walking into the Commonwealth attorney office and running for that office. And kind of an interesting move to go from being a judge and, you know, appellate judge at that, uh, and, and then switching gears to being an elected prosecutor. Uh, you know, it's a much more like high touch. You are not just ruling on things, but you're actually having to make decisions about who to prosecute, what to do, how to enforce the law. It's a big difference. And, you know, um, everybody who talked to, you know, there were people, there are things to criticize him about. But yeah, most of the commentary I've seen as uh, as he's passed away has been about like, you know how how he did connect with people and, and it does feel like that role kind of suited uh the person that he was maybe a little better okay um jasmine tell us a little bit about the jail uh this seems like a good place to put that in there um we talked i talked a little bit about this last week but you felt like there were some details that we needed to talk about maybe a little bit more yeah so like you said you mentioned this last week um but I just kind of wanted to follow up in another quick hit about some of the specific things about the jail investigation. So Louisville commissioned an investigation into the Metro jail last year after 13 people died in custody. And that was released last week. And um, Robert covered some of the general issues, but um, I just wanted to talk about like the three like main specifics. So the first one was the building. Um, the report talks about open great cell fronts presenting a suicide risk. And I don't really know architecture. So I don't really know exactly what that means. <laughs> Do you Robert? Well, I mean, it's kind of gruesome to think about, but you think with the open... I think that's like the bar... Yeah, that's what they detention mean. Detention doors is like what the, they mean, Yeah, right? having bars that you can fit parts of your body bar, through. Uh, yeah, like that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, so that to me seems like something that would be a, a big cost to fix. Like, that's like an infrastructure problem, you know? Um it also talked about overcrowding issues and then just because of like the way the building is built with like long office style corridors, it talked about having a lot of blind spots and indirect like vision that guards couldn't always see everybody and that there were a lot of blind spots in corridors. And so it sounds from reading it, it just sounded like there weren't a lot of eyes on people (laughs) yeah and so there really needs to be a better way to supervise um and so it it sounds like just a dated building and the only way to fix that is a major 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 upgrade or a new jail um and and i think that 
is a really complicated thing. It's a tough issue for sure. Like it is something that, you know, there's there's a big movement uh, opposing a new jail here in town. And, and a lot of those people have have good reasons to be to to be asking for those things. But, you know, this report does point to the fact that there are significant facility related issues that make like the level of staffing needed increase in order to keep the people safe. And then also just like dated infrastructure, dated physical plant stuff that that, you know, increase the risk of people, you know, dying by suicide, which is is bad we an outcome that we don't want so mm-hmm. you know th- this is a debate that's evolving and you know unlike a lot of things at the state level since this is a city this is a city of louisville issue like i don't know where it's going to land the mayor has said he's not interested in building a new jail um that is a statement he's made but like i you know i don't i don't know where this one goes it does seem like that there's a lot of need for some upgraded facilities uh, but but that could take and of course that doesn't always mean a new jail and, and where we land hopefully is a collaborative process between um the people who don't want a new jail and and the people who who do um you know and i, I think the opportunity is there everybody i've talked to who's like we don't need a new jail is willing is willing to acknowledge the significant facilities issues that we have so yeah i i, I don't know i honestly don't even know what to think really i it's read, read the report listen to what people have to say but this is something that definitely has a ways to go before um before we know what's going to happen um yeah i don't, I don't, and, I don't know and one other building thing it also said that medical units were woefully inadequate for treating people with medical issues and, and so um that is really bad but seems like something that could maybe be fixable within an existing facility um and so hopefully that's something that could be improved upon and so i kind of see the building issues as something that the the people in charge can't really do anything about um and then these other two categories i see as like kind of like failures i guess well at least one of them and that's drug use and security and so the report found that um staff took a hands off a hands off approach on security and that during the pandemic they cut down on cell inspections and then when they started because of that whenever they started training new recruits it it just kind of created this different culture and hands-off approach to supervising and security and so they just weren't really checking very well it sounds like and so um from over six years of being a public defender drugs getting into the facility drugs getting into the jail were always seemed to be an issue um and so i'd i'd say hands-off approach seems um accurate (laughs) yeah the, the report gets into it a lot more and you mentioned it but kind of the interplay between the COVID 19 pandemic and staffing and operations how how the the staff actually operated inside of the building and how all of that kind of spun together into a really bad situation that resulted in a lot of people dying uh and and that's kind of with all of these other issues like the facility itself um yeah and and the lack of staffing which is the last the last thing but uh yeah it, it does seem like that you know all of these things kind of 
it wasn't just one thing. It never was just one thing. It was mm-hmm. like uh, several really bad things that happened that led to a lot of deaths happening in a short period of time. Yeah. So they have taken a couple of remedial measures here. They now have a body scanner for when people in custody return from court to make sure that they don't have contraband coming back into the jail. Uh, but they don't have this. The jail staff doesn't have to go through a scanner coming back. And if you want to ensure that employees aren't also bringing in contraband, which at correctional facilities, that can be an issue sometimes. They they may want to have scans as well. You know, I don't know. And then the other thing that they have done is that they they now have fencing um, in a certain area because they were worried that work aides could pick up things, contraband off the ground um, from certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The whole jail issue is... It's something we probably need to talk about more. Like, it is something that is going to be a big deal in Louisville in the next little bit here. Probably in the next year, for sure. Um, as in the, the this report and also just kind of the, the needs are explored. And, and, you know, we do have a lot of needs. We have a lot of needs. Uh, and we have a lot of people that are going to jail. Um, there is uh, there is a lot of stuff happening here. So uh, it is it is a tough a tough issue for sure uh, to know what to do with. Uh, if we're going to continue to incarcerate people, especially at the rate that we're going to, we have an obligation to keep them safe. So um, that is that is the only thing I know to be true. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then oh, oh did you want no, me go, to do the, like the last one? Yeah. Go go ahead. And then the last one was staffing and supervision. And I don't know. I feel like a broken record here because I feel like this is something we, we've we just talked about anytime we've talked about any government agency, um, but overwhelming vacancies, basically. Yeah. And those vacancies have caused overtime pay to increase a lot. Um, and so and that money that they're using to pay overtime um, could be used to paying new workers. Um, And also jail staff did not see the same kind of raises that LMPD got. um, And and that's also a very difficult hazardous job. Um, And so, and so that's an issue too. And so that, you know, that is something that, is hopefully fixable as well. Um, I, I think, I think the most complicated issue are probably like the building issues. Um, but the, the security and the staffing and supervision issues, um, you know, the, the thing about working overtime in these vacancies is when they have people that are overworked, that also means like negligence and duty when, when you don't have enough people working shifts. Um, not everything gets done too. And, and that probably leads to issues as well. Um, and that's mentioned in the report. And so I, you know, some of these things I think are fixable, but I, I certainly think that the building presents the most complicated issue here. Sure. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly seems like it. Uh, and it is also the most complicated solution set. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing about this is like, I, I hope that reading the report, the, the other people who are 
involved in the justice system, not all judges and prosecutors, I'm not sure if they like think about the way that they're involved in. Yeah, they don't have to go to the jail as nearly as often yeah, as like, people it, work on the defense bar. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much they think about like their responsibility for people's safety in the jail. You know, I know that some certainly do. One of those is the late Sean Delahanty. I think yeah. he truly thought about. Um, he knew that the jail was overcrowding. He mentioned it a lot, and and he thought about who needed to be there, um, and what he was doing by putting someone who might not need to be and whether he was putting them at risk by sending them there for the night. Um, and, and I hope that like reading this report and seeing the issues there, I, I hope that other people who are justice system involved, you know, think about that like responsibility that they have um, and how they might contribute to it and the risks involved and, you know, how we can make the situation better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that requires a lot of work. I, you know, we can talk about this forever, but I do, I do sense that in Louisville, especially like people, people are paying more attention to issues in judge races. Uh, and, and that's one that I certainly hope people hold on to because judges are like, the yeah. Officials and, and uh, I think a lot of new judges really do think about that and took, took the jail deaths very seriously and, and and think about that when they make bond decisions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on. Um, a few weeks ago, we learned that Louisville Metro Council member Anthony Piagentini, who is also the leader of the Republican caucus in the Louisville Metro Council, um, he was embroiled in an ethics commission case regarding his employment by the Louisville Healthcare CEO Council at $240,000 a year. He received this job. He started working in this job just a few days after he helped that group receive $40 million in COVID relief grants from the city. So definitely some optic issues there. Um, he is now suing the Ethics Commission for releasing documents related to the case too early. Um, so this is actually like an open documents case. It doesn't really actually have much to do with his actual case, just saying that they shouldn't have released these documents. Amy Vincent Haver, who's been on the show before, uh, and she also co-founded the Kentucky Open Government Coalition, she told WFPL, who wrote the, the story about this that I read, that his case has little chance of success. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. Have you been following the Anthony Piagentini saga around this at all, Jasmine? And what do you think about this case, if so? Um, I've, I've only followed this a little bit, just kind of highlights on Twitter, but I... I'm not an open records expert, but Amy Bensonhaver is. Uh -huh. um, and I typically trust her to know the law really well. Yeah. <laughs> on that. So if she ha thinks that has little chance of success, I'm, I think I believe that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it I, sounds I, like it's like they shouldn't have. From what you're saying, it sounds like it's not that they shouldn't have been released. It's like that they shouldn't have been released to. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, and, and, and like, I don't know what his strategy is here. Like, he's not really attacking the actual et the, the, the facts of the case uh, or saying that what he did was right. He's like saying you shouldn't have 
let people see doc. I, I don't know. Uh, it could be part of a larger strategy. Um, WFPL is all over this, the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, especially, which is part of that uh, part of the Louisville public media. But uh, yeah, they're all over this. They're going to continue monitoring it. But yeah, interesting, interesting situation there for, for uh, council member Piagentini. All right, next thing, the Supreme Court of Kentucky ruled a few weeks ago that the statue of John B. Castleman be returned to its place in the Cherokee neighborhood in Louisville. Um, that's not that far from my house. It's very close to where I go to church. Uh, it, <laughs> it, This saga of the Castleman statue is one of the dumbest things in the city as far as I'm concerned. I uh, saw the ruling and thought in my mind, who actually wants it to go back? Like, what are we doing here? Like, it's gone. It's been gone. It, it's been out of the news. Like, thank goodness. Like, it was such a eyesore after it was vandalized so many times, etc., etc. But the answer to who wants it to be put back is the Friends of Louisville Public Art. Uh, I don't know anything about this organization or who they are or who they represent or whatever. But they have asked Jennifer Wilcox, who is a Louisville judge, to put the statue back. So the the mayor for for his and his offices, uh, you know, but you know their their stance is that they have no plans nor do they want it put back up so that they're going into the legal system to try to get the statue put back up and like having a judge order to restore the statue back to its spot where i don't think anybody really wants it to be um is is kind of it's kind of something like i don't know if we'll ever be free from this issue it is a mess for sure and it has been for a very long time i can't believe we're still dealing with this uh jasmine did you did you what did you say when you uh saw the ruling the supreme court ruling in the first place and, and what do you think the chances are that it gets put up eventually i didn't read the ruling i read a lot of supreme court cases so sometimes if it's not one of my cases i don't read it <laughs> fair enough because <laughs> i read a lot but i don't know like does this my question is like does this public art group like just exist to like contest this thing or did they exist before like or yeah i don't know if they also want the know. maybe they want the george prentice statue put back maybe they want the confederate monument taken from brandenburg and put back and i don't know i mean i don't know i don't know what they what they want but uh they do want the castleman statue put back i it, it is just kind of funny to me that they're like judge you must put it back and not like the mayor who's accountable yeah. to an election and like, you know, the person who's in charge. I kind of don't think it will go back where it was. I, I could see like, I don't know, maybe at some point if this like goes on long enough, some kind of compromise in the future to put it back somewhere. Yeah. Cave Hill. Where, I yeah, don't know. The big cemetery in Louisville is called Cave Hill Memorial yeah. Cemetery. And it is not that far from this statue. And that is where John B. Castleman is buried. They said they don't want it. So maybe we we'll just like, please take it. Please someone, put it there. I, I think it. that that would be that would be the most appropriate compromise. Like this. Yeah. is this is the man's grave. Like this was a statue of him. I don't know. It's it is like <sighs> I just the any amount of time I spend talking about John Castleman is is more than I need to, and yet here we are on the show talking. Yeah, about I him think here. that's why I 
just like haven't taken the time. Yeah, I, and you know that's that's true. All and right. then you asked me about it, and I'm like, I don't know. All right, well, let's stop talking about them now and move on to the next thing. The last thing, the last thing on my list of things to talk about, which is that the Department of Justice, the United States Department of Justice, held the first of several listening sessions in Louisville yesterday. That was on May the eighth. Um, and, and the purpose for these listening sessions is to hear how best to address the violations that they found in the report that ended up, ended up with LMPD being put under a consent decree. Uh, I tried to read some reporting on this. I did not go to the listening session. Uh, I don't feel like I'm the person they need to listen to. Uh, but, you know, I did read some small write-ups about this, and it seems like most of the um, most of the work was done in groups, so you know, not, not a lot of reporting about things people said since they were kind of in smaller groups and a lot of Department of Justice employees there listening to people. And there will be several more of these happening. I do know that there was there's one going on tonight, uh, and I think there are a few more in the next few days or and i do think that there are some later um but i'm not sure when they are uh, so if you're interested in going to one or if you have something that, that you think the doj needs to know or see definitely look them up a lot of them are happening at libraries so there will probably be one um around somewhere where you are if you are in the louisville area so that is that is that um yeah i don't know jasmine do you do you think that there's any value to these kind of listening sessions are you happy that they're happening uh, what, what do you think about this I definitely think there's value to them, especially if the DOJ is is who's involved in them. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I think things like this can just be the community all like talking about their concerns, but there's no one like at the top who's actually like there to do anything about it. And and you know, maybe maybe here there's someone who can. Um, whether it's going to result in anything, you know, I don't know, yeah. but um, people are at least being heard. Yeah, um, a, a lot of critic. I, I have had a lot of heard a lot of criticisms of like listening sessions because I think there's a lot of frustration when things are only listening sessions and they don't like lead to actions. It's like it's one thing to be heard. Yeah, it's one thing to be like listened to and action taken on your behalf. Um, I do know also that a lot of people complain that like, oh, you know, these consent decrees, they don't actually result in much happening. But I do think like, you know, things are iterative, right? You know, it is good to listen to people to get a sense of what people need. And it, just because something didn't work super great in the past doesn't mean it's not going to work great in the future. You know, you learn from what happened in the past and you hope to change your behavior in the future to do better. So, you know, this is an opportunity for the DOGA. It's an opportunity for the city of Louisville. Uh, and, and, you know, it is a group of people taking it seriously and, and uh, wanting to do it on behalf of the right people. Um, so I do think like it is good. I just think we need to continue to monitor what's going on and push put on, putting pre pressure to actually have like action be taken um, on behalf of like correct policing. And it seems like from what people said, uh, what, what I did read in the write up, it, it, people are being very like, nuanced and judicious about like what they want like they want accountability i don't i don't feel like people are in the space where they're like calling for anything overly radical or crazy they just like want the police to be accountable for their actions which i think is like what what the consent decree is is designed to do and and you know even most of the police officers or like people who speak on behalf of the police that is what they say and like if we all kind of want the same thing maybe we can actually build towards something that is better than the system that we have now so I don't know, Jasmine. Uh, anything else you have to say about that or anything else in the quick hits list? No, I don't think so. Yep. 
All right, no guest this week. Um, we the primary will have happened. I believe. Well, well, I guess it will happen on the the next day that we record. So um, you probably won't be hearing from us before the uh, primary happens. So go vote. No matter what party you're in, there are uh, votes on the ballot. Unless you're registered independent, sorry, you strike out if that is the case. Unless you live in a jurisdiction with like a judge or something that might be up for a special election. But yeah, uh, go vote if you have the chance. Uh, and you know we will be back next week and as the primary wraps up we will do our best to speak to some of the folks who will be standing in the general election in november in the coming weeks all right jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can like us on twitter and they can follow us on twitter and instagram at my old pod they can like our facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice we also have a newsletter you can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter and we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month you can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast and last but not least we're part of the Dimcast network and the Ford Kentucky network all right everybody thank you for listening and we will see you next week I go down